Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Hey, welcome to the Master Mix Podcast. My name is Mike Navina, and thank you so much for being here with me today. Today, my guest is Jameson Durr, who is a San Francisco Bay Area-based recording engineer, mixer, and producer, and he has worked with a bunch of great artists, including Sammy Hagar, Joe Satriani, Chickenfoot, The Circle, The Dead, Dan the Automator, and so many more. And for years, Jameson has been working primarily out of his own studio called Wally's Hideout, which was formerly Studio C of the legendary Hyde Street Recording Studio Complex, which is where a bunch of legendary Legendary records were made for artists like Santana, Clarence Clearwater Revival, the Jefferson Airplane, The Grateful Dead, Green Day, Train, and so many more. And in this conversation, we have a really great conversation about building trust with artists. That's ultimately the thing that has allowed his career to blow up and to be able to work with such prolific artists and become their main engineer in many cases. So, you know, building trust is definitely a super important part. If you're trying to build your way into this industry and you want to grow your clientele, you need to have trust. So in this conversation, we definitely talk about that. We also talk about some of the artists that he's worked with and some of the processes that have gone into making those records for artists like Sammy Hagar and Joe Satriani. So let's not waste any more time. Let's just jump right into this interview. Jameson Durr, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. How you doing, man? I'm doing great, man. Awesome. For people who might not know your history, how you got into music, how you got ultimately to where you are today, can you give us that story? Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I think it starts... Like most engineers, you start off in a band. Um, you know, I started playing guitar when I was probably like 13, um, dabbled around with some, some four tracks and stuff, and then um, got in some bands. Um, and then we um, went into the studio. Uh, we actually went to a studio in Sacramento, California. Um, it was called uh, Enharmonic Studios. And the engineer that was on that session was actually John Bacigalupi who turns out he's one of the guys from tape op. Oh, nice. Um, so, uh, yeah, didn't know this is back in the early days. We're probably talking late eighties, early nineties. Um, so, you know, I kind of got my interest just seeing that. Cause that was the first time I was ever in a real recording studio. Um, and I think at the time they just had like a 16 track tape machine and nothing really, um, nothing really big. Uh, and then, um, you know, we went in again to make our second demo and worked with a younger engineer who seemed, um, you know, pretty cool and hip. And then I started asking questions, you know, what's going on? You know, what what are you doing? What's this? You know, how do you do that? I was really interested just over the guy's shoulder trying to figure out everything. And then uh, at one point, they the whole band was going out to lunch and they said, hey, you want to come with us to do a lunch? It's like, nah, I'm going to hang out here in the studio and just kind of look around and, you know, listen to our takes. And then, uh, you know, I'm kind of playing around on the board, kind of figuring things out. And then the engineer comes back and he hits play and he's like, dude, he turns around. He's like, you've been fucking with the board. It's like, <laughs> he's like, yeah, you've been fucking with the board. <laughs> I couldn't help myself. I didn't know what I was doing, but I figured ain't no harm. I'm paying for the studio time. Why not? So, but, um, so yeah, that was kind of the intro into it. And then, you know, fast forward and then, uh, kind of was playing music with friends and, and ended up getting uh, an eight track recorder and into like a little Mackie mixer. And we would just make demos in our, in our house and just started kind of recording 
with that. And then once that got out, then other bands started kind of hearing friends of ours were hearing what we were doing and they came over and we started making some demos with them. And, 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 and then, um, and then I started kind of getting a little more serious, you know, um, on what I wanted to do in life, probably in my later twenties. And then I, uh, ended up moving to San Francisco from, um, the central Valley of, um, I grew up in Modesto and then, uh, which is about an hour and a half from uh, San Francisco. I uh, found a um, a studio there called Coast Recorders, and um, called them up, asked them for an internship, and they they took me on. Um, this is probably um, ninety eight, ninety nine. Um, so I got in there, and this was my first kind of wake up call to a a real recording studio. So it was a, a very classic recording studio. They had a big um, Neve console. It was like a 72 input Neve console. It was actually two consoles put together. Um, and they had, you know, a couple of Studer tape machines, a bunch of outboard gear. So I kind of learned on all of that kind of coming up and Pro Tools was just starting to get there. I remember at one point the um, studio owner had just bought this Pro Tools rig um, actually from this other well-known engineer named Mark Needham. He was upgrading, and so we bought his old system, and um, and I just started kind of dabbling in on that. Um, we're talking probably Pro Tools four at that point, so quite a ways back. Um, but yeah, sort of cut my teeth on that, um, and then um, I got to be friends with the house engineer there. And it, in two thousand four, the studio unfortunately closed um, in the. Um, San Francisco Bay Area, there was a thing called the dot-com boom, and that actually kind of burst and a lot of places closed. Um, so the studio closed and the studio engineer and I, um, the house engineer, we um, we uh, set up in another studio called um, Closer. And it was another studio, smaller, really small studio, um, and they had an extra room there that he and I set up in there. And just did like mixing and light overdubs. And we'd use the studio down the hallway to do recording. Um, and then uh, we uh, had a common friend of ours, um, this guy named uh, Mike McGinn. And he worked for uh, the band Rat Dog, who is um, Bob Weir's band. Um, we became friends with him while we were both were working at Coast. Um, and then he came into some gear of Bob's. He's like, I, you know, I got all this this gear. I got a console and tape machine and outboard gear and microphones. It's like, I just need a studio. If you guys can find a place, like, it's yours, you know, indefinitely. So <laughs> it's pretty good we, incentive. Um, what's that? Pretty good incentive to, to yeah, get something absolutely. Going, right? <laughs> so we kind of hustled around. We thought we would like build our own studio from scratch, and we looked at a lot of spaces and it seemed kind of crazy. And then we ended up. Um, finding this room at the legendary Hyde Street Studios um, here in San Francisco. And they had a room available, which is the room I'm in right now, the control room. Um, so they um, agreed to rent us just the control room. So we were set up just in the control room as the live room was actually, um, the control room glass was covered and there were two other rooms out in the live room. They had divided it up. Because they were trying to, um, you know, nobody was um, renting big rooms at that time. So they had split it up and and people had like little production rooms set up. Uh, so they had this um, outfit called the Hieroglyphics, which were working on a lot of hip hop stuff here in the Bay Area. Um, and then a few months later, 
those guys decided to move out and the studio offered us the live room. They said, you guys want to take that, you know, for a little bit more money? We're like, hell yes, we do. So we took that on. Um, you know, this is all 2004 when this went down and I've been here ever since and I'm the original partner. That's amazing. Yeah. And you know, there's, there's more to my, my career history, but that's the, that's the history up to this point of moving into this studio. That's amazing. So when you first took it over and it was just a control room, I, I assume that you were just handling mixing projects at that point. You know, we were a lot of mixing, um, and it was cool because I kind of got my intro into analog mixing at that point. We had a big um, uh, Sony console in here um, and a lot of nice outboard gear and reverbs and stuff. So that kind of really opened my mind to like, you know, because before I was all in the box mixing, um, I was a young engineer at that point too. Uh, but once I did that, it would just open my mind. It was just like, holy cow, this is what real records sound like. Um but uh, we were doing some overdubs in here. We would just do it on headphones and we had some, you know, nice mics in here and people would just, you know, set up over there in the corner behind me and, and uh, we would just record in here. I remember having um, some congas in the room and they were just set up right up next to the console and I'm like sitting next to the conga player as he's playing the congas. So, um, but that, that's how we did it. We just all kind of crammed in, in one control room. I love it. For the time being. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes you just gotta you gotta work with the space you have and and uh, make the best yeah. of it, right? And we were thankful to have it with all the outboard gear we had, and and we hit the ground running, so it was great. Yeah, it, it's interesting because you said you you kind of went from like a digital learning Pro Tools, um, and then you started going going kind of the opposite direction that most people go, right? Like it seems like most people are going from analog to digital these days, and you, <laughs> and you kind of went yeah. backwards, right? So what was that? What was that process like of of learning to go backwards and and maybe integrate both of those together? Um, it, it was, it was cool. Like I said, it was really eye opening on, on just the space. I think the first thing I noticed was the quality of the reverbs back in the early two thousands. I don't think the digital reverbs were all that great, you know, to what we have now. Um, so I think that the time that I was learning that, um, really helped me kind of hone my craft and to know what that sound was like to mix on a console, like you know, a lot of the big records were done at that time. Um, but I've actually since come back to mixing in the box and, and now looking back at the analog world, it's like, I don't miss it at all. I have <laughs> so many pictures of console snapshots because the recallability was crazy. I mean, we did have an automated console, which was nice. Um, and at one point it actually destroyed a mix on accident. Um, but, um, yeah, the recallability of, of Pro Tools. I think I actually lost some mix sessions because I wasn't mixing in Pro Tools at some point, you know, because they the band wanted recalls. And I was just like, well, we're going to have to book a few hours to make that tweak. Whereas in Pro Tools, you know, you just open it up, tweak it, change it, you know, you almost don't even build a client if it's a simple, simple tweak. But with this, it's like, okay, we got a book studio time. We got to reset all the gear. And, um, yeah, I just, I don't miss that anymore. <laughs> I think I've, I've developed the, um, you know, I know what it sounds like, what it's supposed to sound like on a console, those big mixes. And so I've figured out how to make that happen in the box. And I kind of made a transition. We went from the console down to a summing mixer and using some outboard gear, kind of doing the hybrid thing that a lot of people do. And then I just, I did a, a comparison. I was like, what really is the difference between the summing mixer and in the box. And then when I did the comparison, I was like, oh, most of the mix stuff I'm doing is actually what I'm doing in the box and not so much um, 
you know, what it's going through. It's more my ear and my aesthetic and my approach to the music. And so hmm. it eventually just kind of worked itself down from the summing mixer and then just all into the box. And so I knew so many big name engineers were, were doing that. It's just like, well, I can do that. <laughs> so I just developed that and you just keep comparing your mixes and you figure it out. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're there. Yeah. That's really interesting because I feel like the, uh, the fact that you even went down to a summing mixer, you know, like what was what was your thought process behind that? Because because it sounds like after you, after you had it, you were like, wait a minute, that's not actually doing that much. Right. And, and I feel like these days there's so many people that are like, you need a summing mixer and a summing mixer makes your digital mixes sound better. So I'm curious to know, like what that uh, transition was like, like when when you got the summing mixer, what did you think was going to happen with it? Well, yeah, I, I know. I thought that we were going to get the same sound. So the the sound that we were getting on the Sony was very clean. It wasn't like an aggressive rock mixer. It was more of like a cleaner jazz thing. I mean, it was Bob Weir's mixer, so it might have been better suited for mixing Grateful Dead stuff. But um, the um, but so the first summing mixer we got was a Neve summing mixer, and that was like night and day because that has all kinds of coloration in it. So. Um, we um we ended up you know really liking that sound so we um we went with um we went with that and then that belonged to my studio partner at some point he left and so i had to buy a replacement and i got like this uh spl um summing mixer and then that was a lot cleaner and then i noticed my mix is going from that from the um from the Neve to the SPL, which was a lot cleaner. And so there was a lot more top end on it. So I had to kind of re-EQ everything differently. So um, it kind of made it like I was trying to push more top end through the Neve, which I guess is what most people might do since it's such a colored mixer. Yeah, for sure. So when you, you, you'd mentioned that once you tried using the summing mixer, eventually you kind of realized that you were getting a very similar sound to what your digital mixes were sounding like already. So, yeah. so I'm curious to know, like you, you'd mentioned that, you know, it was the things you were doing in, in the digital world that were making it sound kind of analogy anyway. So what were those things that you found you were doing that made it so you didn't need that summing mixer? Um, uh, that's a good question. Uh, I, I think when I started a being the mixes, I realized that there wasn't that much of a difference and the money that I had paid for that, that summing mixer and all the conversion stuff that it was going through wasn't making the amount of money that I spent on it sound that much better. So I decided just to to take that out. And I also wanted to be portable too. I wanted to also work um, mix for my home studio, which is where I do predominantly most of my work. And then, um, and then be able to take that in here and work with clients. If I wanted to, you know, if I needed to work in person here or if I needed to go to their studio, I just, I wanted the portability of it to be able to, to, to move around. So that was a big, a big part of wanting to go that route. Um, and, um, yeah, that's cool. Basically, that's it. Just portability. Yeah. I'm sure it offers a lot more flexibility as well, because obviously like you have that portability, but then your sessions are probably going much faster, which is probably from a, from a financial standpoint, you can run more sessions because you're spending less time routing signals and recalls and all that stuff. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Um, one one thing that I wanted to ask you about was I noticed that you do you've been doing a lot of work with Sammy Hagar, 
And that seems to be one of your, your big clients. So I was wondering if you could talk about how that relationship started and, and uh, what that's been like for you. Okay. Yeah, that's a, another great question. So that all came through um, another amazing engineer named John Cunaberti. Um, and he's mostly known for working on the Joe Satriani records, which ironically enough, I'm sitting in the room where they recorded Surfing with the Alien. Oh, nice. Um, that's that's actually not how I know him. That's just another ironic thing that had kind of had happened. But um, while um, my studio partner, my past studio partner, Justin um, Phelps, and I worked at Coast, uh, John Cunaberti was the um, kind of studio manager um kind of head engineer, but he had kind of left just when I came there, but he would come back occasionally to do sessions and he had moved on also to, to do some mastering too. Um, so when it came time for me to, yeah, you know, get the mixes I was working on mastered, um, I was told to use John through my uh, partner, Justin. So uh, I started going to him and he was um, working at this place called The Plant, which was a really nice, prestigious place. Uh, best mastering room I've, I've probably ever been in um, uh, next to Ted Jensen's room in um, Nashville. But um, this room was great and John's ears were great. And so I would bring these mixes to him and he would start to kind of see my work and see what I did. And I think that that then led to the next step when he was called in on this project, um, which was the chicken foot project, which was, um, Sammy Hagar and Michael Anthony, both from Van Halen. And then they had Chad Smith, the drummer from the chili peppers and then Joe Satriani. Um, so when they were working on their first record, John got called in to kind of help on it cause he's Joe's guy. And then, um, John knew that he, he wasn't really going to be you know, assisting on the whole session that he should get somebody else in. So he called upon me and this is, um, try to figure out what year this was 2006. I think they were almost kind of like just demoing the record. They were kind of figuring it out. And this was all happening at Sammy's studio. We, we kind of got everything set up. The, um, the main engineer producer on that gig was the late Andy Johns, who's done a lot of huge stuff like Led Zeppelin and, um, bunch of other big rock records and I'm sure you can look them up and you'll be the list goes on um but so i got to assist him which was pretty cool you know i learned a lot just kind of watching him like how do you get that you know led zeppelin drum sound and yeah all that guy's that. Done so it. I watched, he knows exactly what went into it <laughs> yeah so um yeah him and his brother right so i just uh i watched him and everything he did and um learned a lot from that and then at some point you know john once everything was set up and running then, you know, he stepped out and it was just Andy and I and the band. And so that's kind of how I got to know Sammy. And then after uh, um, Andy Johns had gone back to L.A. after they were done recording everything, Sammy realized like, oh, well, I need to do some vocal punch-ins or I need to re-sing some things. So he just ended up calling me in to do it. So I was like super honored um, for that. And so the relationship just kind of developed after that. And then um, – after that chicken foot record was done, they ended up doing a second one. And then they had, um, Mike Frazier. If you're familiar with him, he's done a lot of big rock records like Aerosmith and Metallica and, and the list goes on. Um, so I ended up working with him on the second record. Um, so both in, in same thing at Sammy's studio. So, um, I was already there and I knew the studio, so I could, I could help, um, you know, Mike with anything he needed. 
Um, and then after that, he ended up doing an acoustic record. And then I just ended up being the engineer on that. And then he had his, uh, another engineer mix that. And then after that, he ended up doing a live record and he just really wanted to see what, um, the show sounded like cause they were unmixed. They were just raw files. So I really took that seriously and did a really good job mixing that because I wanted it to be presented in the best possible. Of course. When you have a client like that, you gotta, you gotta make it sound as best as it can. Right. Yeah. And I thought, well, yeah, maybe I'll get the gig mixing this. It's like, well, I'm just going to do this really good. And so I bring the mixes into the studio. He hears him. He's like, holy shit. It's like, we got a live record here. <laughs> so I ended up, um, <laughs> making a live record out of um, all the shows that he did, um, I think in 2014. And uh, we just made kind of a best of record. And that was called um, uh, The Circle, uh, Sammy Hagar and The Circle um, At Your Service, which was the live record. Um, and then after that, um, you know, sometimes you just never know what's going on with Sammy. You start to kind of like record some demos or something and then all of a sudden it just evolves into an album like he sometimes he doesn't set out to like hey I'm going to make an album it's like hey I want to got some ideas I want to record these things let's see what happens so um you know after he gets a few songs they're like then it becomes the reality is like oh we're actually going to make a record here so that was the um record I did I think it was in 2017 um we we um I made the record with him uh, called Space Between, and that's the one that hit the Billboard charts. So that was a big feather in my cap, and and um, was really good for my career, and a really fun record to make with really good musicians. So it's it's interesting that that I just do what I do for every band. You know, I I put my all into it. I try to make them sound as good as I can, and then you apply those same skills to a really awesome band and all of a sudden it just sounds like a record so it really has to do with your musicianship you know you're just like oh damn like this yeah. is it well that, that's actually a really interesting point because you know i was i'm always curious when i hear engineers that kind of have like that kind of become somebody's main guy you know what i mean like like you work with sammy on tons of records and i know a couple other engineers that work with people pretty much exclusively you know i always wonder like what is it about that person that made them feel like that, that created that connection so that, you know, they want to work together. Right. So what do you think it was about you that ultimately made Sammy feel comfortable with like having you continue with him? That's a really good question. Um, I, I think it has to do with trust. Um, it's trust in, in, on a personal level, you know, can I trust this person? Are they a solid person? Can they be in my studio and not be a psycho weirdo? Um, and do they have, you know, some talent? Can they actually make your music sound really good? Um, you know, because I've gotten to the point where it's, um, you know, I, I have keys to his studio and there's, you know, it's a multi-million dollar facility with all of his studio gear, guitars, touring gear, all of his exotic cars. It's, it's like, I take that as a real honor. It's just like, wow, he really trusts me. So, um, I don't take that lightly. And, um, you know, it's definitely, it's a, it's a big honor to, to have that. And you just, you know, it took me years to build that trust, you know, probably about 10, 10 years of, of just being there. And then it's also every time they call, you just say, yes. You just say yes. <laughs> it's gotten a little more comfortable now where there's a little more flexibility in the schedule. Like if I can't do it, you know, I'll offer up some other dates and they're usually 
cool to be flexible with me. But uh, early on, it's like I just said yes to everything because um, I didn't want some other guy to come in and get the gig. It's just like, no, I want this gig. This is my gig. I'm taking this. You know, the, the opportunity's there. So, you know, I'm going to to do everything I can to to make that happen. Yeah, that's interesting. Like, do you feel like had you said no to any of those gigs back then, do you feel like now that you know Sammy more, do you feel like you could have had a little bit more flexibility back then? Or was it just like <laughs> you, you, you didn't want to take that chance? Yeah, no, I didn't want to take that chance. Um, I, I don't you know, it, I think it just happened perfectly where there was nothing that I couldn't easily move when he called. You know, so it's um, and. Uh, you know, so I, I think sometimes it would come up. I would be booked for another band with another band, and I would just tell them, like, "Look, this opportunity came up. You know, are you cool to move this?" And they would totally understand because then it kind of makes them look good. Like, "Oh, hey, our engineer's working with Sammy Hagar. It's like it's cool. Like we moved our schedule for him." <laughs> you know, so it, you know it, it ends up all working out. Um, That's interesting. Like, and that whole idea of trust. Like, I totally agree with that. I think you you definitely need to have that trust with someone and. And on that topic, like how, what recommendations do you have for people to build that trust with the artists that they work with? Oh, that's huge. Um, you know, I, I have a lot of meeting with, with bands and artists and, you know, first you're just sitting and talking and getting to know each other. Um, it's usually not very often that I'll do something through email, maybe mixes cause it's not as, is totally personal and they kind of already hear your work. But when you're going to be in the studio working with somebody, um, you know, you kind of got to get along personally. You have to, um, you know, you have to kind of see eye to eye on things um, and and, and want to make their music the best it, it can be. Um, you know, they, they're trusting you with their baby, with their, their music. And for me, it's just another record. For them, it's their life. You know, this is like a big part of their life, the record that I make with them. So, you know, I, I, I take that really seriously. And, and it's, it's a... Um, you know, you're almost immortalizing them. We're, we're time stamping this part in their life. And so I take it very seriously and, and, and try to be, I don't really try to be, I'm just kind of an easygoing guy. So, um, and my personality just, you know, will hopefully, you know, they'll, we'll get along, you know, personally on that level. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it's, it's good to hear that. And I think that that's, like you were an assistant, you started off as an assistant. And I feel like I hear a lot of people on this pod. I hear a lot of people on this podcast say like, if you're the assistant, you just got to shut up. You don't really say much. You just follow along. So I feel like when you think about it from that perspective, it seems like it would be super hard to build up that trust with the artists because you're kind of just like operating pro tools or that kind of thing. Right. So it's like how, how, or where do you find that time to, to build that trust and to have those kind of conversations and to be that cool person as opposed to just like the quiet guy in the corner who's just pressing buttons. Right. Right. Yeah. And it definitely started off that way. And and that is, that is the proper assistant studio etiquette is that you basically don't speak until spoken to. You definitely don't give your opinion up because you're just not in that seat yet. Um, you know, maybe it was that, you know, that I was very respectful and, and professional. Um, and then, you know, I, I think it, there, there's times where, you know, you can, you can kind of chill out, like when the thing's not happening and he's telling a story or something, you know, um, and you, know, you kind of get to connect a little more on a personal level, um, or, you know, at some point, you know, we'll stop, you know, Hey, how you doing? You know, what's going on, you know, to kind of get to know somebody personally. And I think it's just, you know, if you work in a room on a record with somebody, 
and you know, I've done several records with him just as an assistant, like you, you get to kind of know each other at that point. So it's just time in the room and, um, and just knowing somebody personally. And it almost seems like a natural progression as, um, engineers move from assistant to, to, you know, lead engineer to engineer producer, you know, just that trust starts to get built. For sure. Yeah. It seems like you're just kind of, you're just having natural conversations and building up your relationship that way, as opposed to like when he's telling a story, if you start saying like, Hey, you know what? Now that we're talking, we should really change that second verse or whatever. You know, if you say something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that, that, that could be, um, that could go either way. It could be you're, you're brilliant or you're like, you're a stupid kid. You don't know what you're talking about. Get out of the studio. But basically, yeah, you just don't, you don't offer your, your opinions unless you're asked and, you know, somebody turns around. Hey, Pro Tools guy, like, what do you think? You know, but at the same time, they're they're actually relying on you to make them sound good, like via editing. You know, so when I was an assistant, I'm like, oh yeah, you can fix that. Just you know, nudge this this way or that way. You know, make me sound better. I remember um, Chad Smith kind of standing over my shoulder, and it's like, hey, you just fix that right there. You know, you got that. Just fix that. It's like, okay, I got it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that that's an interesting point too, because like as the assistant and someone who's doing the editing. Like you do have a lot of power to change the feel of something and 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 impact the way the recording sounds. So are you typically would you be typically having conversations with either the, the head engineer or the artist ahead of time to de to decide like how much editing you should be doing or if any at all? Oh, well, yeah, good question. So when I work with Mike Frazier, um, he would have me um, tune and time all the vocals. And I was thinking time the vocals is like, well, didn't he? sing it how he should sing it but you know sometimes if you listen some of the phrases like won't land on the beat which is you know what how singers should sing usually you know is it should have a, a flow to it um and there wasn't much that to do but um but you know he kind of did give me the sort of the freedom to do that um i've also worked with mike frazier on some joe satriani records um and and it's actually another uh, kind of a, a trust thing actually with um, like the lead engineer producer being the um, the assistant is that sometimes they'll trust you to kind of do more things. Like I did a lot of the mic placement on Joe's cabinets, um, you know, and at first I would be, um, you know, I have headphones on and I would be, Joe would be playing and I'd be moving the mics around on the cabinet and he would say, yeah, yeah, right there, right there. Uh, but there'd be other times like, hey, you know, just go mic up those cabinets and I'd put them where I always put them on cabinets just from watching Andy Johns and, and um, Mike Frazier and John Cooneberty. Like they all kind of put the mics pretty much on the same part on the cabinets using the same mics. And so I just kept, you know, repeating that. And then uh, at some point Mike was just, you know, he puts up the faders like, oh yeah, that's a great guitar sound. Great. Let's go with that. So I was kind of proud to know. I was like, wow, I placed the mics on the cabinet for Joe Satriani. So where is that secret spot then? <laughs> Well, it's just off the center of the cone. Um, you know, you know, if it's right in the middle of the of the cone, then it's it's a little too bright. If it's more out towards the edge of the the speaker, then it's too dark. So you kind of find that happy medium in between. And we're always using fifty sevens and four twenty ones, and so it's always just worked. And for you know, that's for like a Marshall cabinet, you know, with distorted tones. That combination seems to really work. Are you usually pressing got, the mic up like against the grill cloth or you yep, kind of further yep, back? Just straight on, no angle, just straight on. And that's the way those guys have always done it. And I've always done it that way now and it totally works. And it's a repeatable sound that you can always get and rely on. Yeah. 
That's that's interesting. Uh, I was very very curious to know about that because I I knew that you worked with Joe and obviously with Sammy having been in Van Halen, like you know those guys are used to like guitar iconic guitar tones. So I was curious to know if you felt any pressure to like make sure that you had like amazing guitar tones while working with these guys because they're so used to it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's kind of the fun part because I'm I'm a guitar player too. And uh, at one point when we were working on the Space Between record, I was working with um, Sammy's guitar player, Vic Johnson, who's an amazing guitar player. Uh, and he he's a he's a big guitar head. You know, he's really into gear. So we had stacks and stacks of amps in the um, in the control room. We had the cabinets out in the live room, and then we would stack up all the heads there, and we would try all these different heads. Uh, to try to try to find the sound that we were looking for. And then he had all these guitars. I think if you look on my Instagram, you'll see these stacks of guitar heads and um, and, and the, the couch in the studio is just littered with all these awesome guitars, Les Pauls and Flying Vs, and just it's pretty awesome. So, um, but yeah, back to, to um, Sammy and Joe. Um, yeah, there is is a pressure to get it right. And Joe's very meticulous on his guitar sound. So we definitely spent a lot of time. And then being the assistant, like I had to document everything, that whole signal chain. If he, we took that amp down and he wanted to do a punch in on that, like we had to recreate that. So I made sure to document all the preamps settings and even the amp settings, even though he has a dedicated um, amp tech guy that would do that, like just as a backup, I would I would document all of that stuff. Yeah, it's like, that's super important too. Like if, you know, I, I still do that now. If there's like a great guitar tone we got, like I document that in case I need to get that again. For sure. Yeah, I, I was curious about that with, with Joe. Like how much, like obviously he's known for his guitar tone. So, you know, like how involved is he in that process of of getting those tones? Or is it like, is and how much of it is like him versus the the engineer? Yeah, good question, Mike. So th what I learned is that, like I said, I, like, I do the same thing that I do in every session, put the mics in the same place, um, you know, sometimes use some of the same gear. But when you get somebody like Joe, it's it's a lot of it's in his fingers and his guitar. Um, yeah, his amp makes a difference too, but he's got his sound. And once you hear that coming back, you're like, oh, that's it, like it's it yeah it's it's all him it's the whole chain like i could pick up his guitar definitely not nearly as good a guitar player as he is um but yeah it, it definitely wouldn't sound the same so it has a lot to do with his fingers and his touch yeah i think that's that's a really important point because i think yeah i mean you could probably get you'd get that tone much quicker when you have a good guitar player versus like trying to i think for like the amateur player like or even like yourself who said you know you're not at Joe's level, like to get his tone, like there, there'd be something missing. You could have everything set up the same way. Um, you know, you, you're just missing that one ingredient, which is really all in the fingers. Yeah, it really is. And that's, that's really what I noticed, um, sitting next to him is he's just blazing, just like, damn, <laughs> like sitting next to one of the best guitar players in the world is, is a pretty, pretty big honor. Yeah. I'm sure you learn a lot about guitar being in the room with him, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then him just trying different guitars, like he would have his favorites, but then, you know, he'd grab others just to get different, different tones and different feels. So were there anything, were there any, um, was there any part of his signal chain that like surprised you? No, it was actually very quite simple. Um, it's pretty much guitar, amp, cabinet, 
microphones. Like he doesn't use a lot of pedals. Um, he does live, but in the studio, unless we're going for like kind of a interesting effect, otherwise it would be just pretty straightforward. Um, I do remember that tuning was a big, a big deal. And at some points the, um, uh, if anybody's been in, in control rooms, you know, of this size, um, that the temperature fluctuates so much because of all the gear in the room and the air conditioning. It's just, it's never consistent. It's either cold or it's hot. It's cold is hot. So we had to actually just turn the air conditioner off when we were in the studio working with Joe and it was extremely warm, but at least it stayed at consistent temperature, which made his guitar tuning stay consistent. So that was a, a big thing was just trying to keep a consistent temperature. So I remember every time Joe would come in, do the, you know, play his guitar in the control room, which is always how he tracks. Um, we would, you know, grab the AC remote, turn it off. It's like, okay, here we go. <laughs> like, you know, it's going to get hot for a minute. So, you know. but that, that's a really interesting point too, because I I don't think a lot of people even realize how much temperature can affect the tone of tuning. Everything. Oh yeah, yeah. Whether it drums, guitar, or whatever, like that, that, that actually makes a big impact on on the way your instrument reacts to it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, constant temperature is huge. And in a control room, it's hard because, you know, you have three guys and a bunch of guitar amps and outboard gear that it gets hot fast. Yeah. And I, I would assume too, like, I mean, that guy, obviously he's, he's amazing and he's got, he's probably got like one of the best techs to help him you he know, does. maintain his guitars too. But, <laughs> but even then temperature still affects it, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, we do what we can. And when we're doing a recording, you know, we want it to be as consistent as possible. For sure. Yeah. Um, one other thing that I had heard about, uh, just to go back to Sammy Hagar, I had heard that he is generally a, the kind of person who loves to work really quickly in the studio. Is oh, that he true? does. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's why, like, when I don't know if it's a demo or if it's an album thing that we're working on, like, I record everything like it's it's going to be real. Like, I just take the time, I set it up, I get in beforehand. Like, I know what we're doing, we're doing vocals, we're doing guitars, like, you know, we're going to do bass, whatever. Like I'll have all that stuff pre-set up because I know he just wants to come in and just bang it out. So when he does his vocal takes, he'll do, you know, four or five takes of vocals. Um, and then I'll usually comp something and then, you know, he'll listen back. And if he wants to punch in a line, then he'll do it and then he's done. So it's, it's, um, you know, working with him is a, is a pleasure because it's, it's, we don't work like long, crazy days. It's like a normal, like eight hour day at most. You know, it's, it's a pretty, pretty easy, easy day because he likes to work fast. And, and I like to work fast too. I, I, I hate like laboring over something over and over, like, you know, doing 20 takes of a singer, um, that can't sing. It's just, it's just grueling. But when you get somebody like him, as soon as he opens his mouth, you're just like, wow, that's, that's the sound. That's awesome. So what sort of efficiencies do you create for yourself that allow you to work quickly then? Um, Having a lyric sheet helps, you know, you can follow along. So when he wants to punch in, you can, you can find that lyric and, and, and just punch in right there. Just paying attention to each take. Um, sometimes it's hard to kind of be engineer producer because it, on the engineering side, you're kind of listening for the tone and watching the levels and watching the compressor and make sure nothing distorts. Um, and then the other part, like you're listening to the performance and the lyrics and the delivery of it. Um, so, you know, paying attention on that um, and just being, 
you know, quick at, at the at the comping part of it too, because I, I he kind of goes away and makes some phone calls or whatever, and then I'll like you know comp it in you know a song probably in in twenty or thirty minutes, have him come back in and listen to it. So it's you know he's kind of used to the process of that. Um, yeah, he's he is he can be pretty impatient and just kind of wants wants it now. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I appreciate that. And 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 anytime he asks for something, I'm just I'm just on it and I deliver because I know he he gets excited. You know, he wants to to hear it now and then wants to get it released. It's like sometimes it's like, it's good enough. Just release it. It's like, no, not yet, Sammy. <laughs> like we just need to tweak a few more things, but you know, he's all about vibe is, is him. Like if it feels good, he's good with it. You know, he's not super technical, um, tweaky guy. You know, it's like if the vibe is there and, and he feels it, then he knows it's good and that it will resonate with the fans. Yeah, I guess sometimes that's like a blessing and a curse to have someone who's not super technical because like the way they communicate might not be the the, the most ideal way for you to know what they're talking about all the time. But right. but I guess yeah, after you've worked with someone for so long, you, you definitely have that uh that trust factor. So you, you kind of know what they're going for and Yeah. You know, you, exactly. Yeah. Are you guys using like templated setups at all to to work faster or is it kind of just like every session's striking um, you? Yeah, there are there are a lot of template stuff um that I I set up so that he's kind of got the same the same reverb and stuff in his headphones. And I will, I will check it before he comes in and, and put his headphones on and, and, and speak into his mic and make sure all the levels are good. Um, and I'll, I'll preset the mix too, if there's, if he's playing with a band. So I'll there do one of two things. I'll even just give him, um, a knob on his headphone mixer, which is just the band, which is usually what I do. Um, and then his voice, um, if I'm recording like a full band, I usually will preset all their headphone mixers just at 12 o'clock and then I'll have the headphones on the control room and I'll make all the monitor mixes where it sounds even so that they can go up or down from there. So that that really helps kind of speed up the process. Because you definitely don't want to get in the way when you're like working with big bands like this. It's like you want everything to go. Um, and the crazy thing was is when I did this album with Sammy, like – I was kind of doing everything. I didn't have a bunch of assistants under me. I might've had one assistant, you know, a couple of days here and there, but for the most part, like I was the, I was the guy like wearing all the hats. Cause I'm just used to that. So I just jump around and just do everything. And that way I'm, I know everything's in control and I know where everything's at. Yeah. It sounds like having being, being prepared on the way into the studio is like, is the best way to, to make it work fast. And, you know, like, like you said, it's like creating that it's almost creating a comfortable environment for him as well. Right. Cause he can show up. He knows that everything's ready to go. He doesn't have to waste time, burning out his voice and, you know, setting up his mixes and all that stuff. You've already done most of that work for him. Yeah. And I'll have to get like mic levels on him, but you know, I've been doing it so much. I just kind of know where it's set on the preamp. It's like, yeah, it's right here. I, we use the same like manly Vox box. So I just, it's like preset. I almost have like little marks on there. <laughs> where it's like you know sammy's voice like then it's just set and then and then we're good to go from there yeah that's awesome i heard that over uh over like the covid period that you guys were working on a record that had a lot of iphone recordings <laughs> yeah that was the one of the most challenging projects i've ever done and when they sent me the first one i thought oh, okay this is this is cute like i'll i'll do my best i'll try to make this sound sound as best i can um and it was an interesting challenge because um, they're recording in less than ideal situations or uh, environments on less than ideal recording equipment and iPhone, you know. So um, so that started off as just kind of an Instagram 
um, posts to kind of keep the fans engaged because they obviously weren't playing any live shows at that time. So um, they were each individually recording themselves. And it, there was a whole process that we finally developed that made it a little bit easier. So I think it would start off with um, either Jason Bonham playing the drums to um, – because a lot of times they do covers, so maybe he would play to the original. Um, or the way it usually worked the best is when Vic, the guitar player, he would have sort of a tempo, and they would, you know, they'd play these covers, but they would change the the song form a little bit to their liking. And they also wanted to keep them short for Instagram posts. But um, so usually it would start with Vic, and he would play to a click track, and then um, I would put that in Pro Tools, and then I would send that to um, that mix to Jason Bonham with the click track. He would play to that. Um, then I'd mix his drums. Um, and the, on the earlier stuff that was all iPhones, we eventually got a little more sophisticated, and I had to um, kind of zoom into his computer and get his Pro Tools system configured. He usually had a guy, but at that time he couldn't, he couldn't have his engineer come out and do it. He's in Florida, so... Um, I had to kind of help him through that. Um, so anyways, I would get his drums and then with Vic's guitar, and then we would send that to Sammy. Sammy would sing to that. And so what his process was, if somebody wasn't using Pro Tools, is they would actually have two devices. So they'd have, say, like an iPad. They're playing it off of the iPad into their headphones, and then they're singing into their iPhone. So there is obviously no synchronization between these two devices. And that's where I come in. So they send that to me and then it's up to me to decide like, well, where does this supposed to fit with the music? And so this <laughs> Lucky is you, kind right? of the, 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 the yeah. I, I, so I had to kind of figure out where they were all sitting. And then same thing with Michael Anthony, you know, we'd send it, you know, the guitar drums, um, and vocal track to, to Mikey, the bass would always go on last for some reason. And then he put it on there and then, you know, then you, you mix it. So you're kind of mixing it as you're going, but you're, you're kind of trying to time people to where it feels good in the groove. So it was, yeah, it was a very interesting, interesting project to have to get all these different sources and then have to sync them together. And then, you know, the video guy had to kind of do the same thing on his side. And then, you know, we would, I would send my mix to him and then he would match it and then they'd send it to the band and they'd have a couple of comments about the video or the audio things. And then we keep tweaking it. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I think we eventually did, you know, an album's worth of songs and then they eventually released it as a, a full length album. And then, um, I believe they submitted it for the Grammys as well, so we will see. Amazing! If yeah, how about that? If yeah. you guys win a Grammy for an iPhone recorded album, that's, that's yeah, right. They need a new right? category: <laughs> most creatively recorded record. <laughs> that would be an amazing category to see. <laughs> yeah, but but um, you know, it's it interesting on on some of the earlier recordings with um jason like sometimes his pro tools rig just didn't work and they had to get it done so he just put his iphone out in front of his drums and play and i actually developed a like a waves preset with their studio rack stacking a bunch of plugins up and i called the preset um you know iphone drums or something like that and it really actually works great <laughs> so 
That's amazing. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, I, I was curious about that. Like, was the iPhone thing just because people didn't have their own setups to to record it properly? Or was it just like, it, so it wasn't actually like a, a thing you guys discussed ahead of time. Like, let's make this really challenging project. No, not at all. It just kind of evolved over time. And and then um, towards the end of it, we we got some people back in the studio when it was a little more safe. You know, we're all masked up and all that at that time. But um, But yeah, it was definitely super challenging. But fun at the same time, you know, I, I enjoy a good challenge, you know, a good audio challenge. And especially for these guys, you know, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. So what's the secret to getting a great iPhone recording then? Um, well, there was one song where Sammy recorded in his huge shower and it was super echoey. And that was the hugest challenge. So I say, try to record in an environment that is not really reverberant. Good you point. Have, like no control <laughs> over that. So, um, yeah, uh, everybody kind of did things a little bit differently. We eventually got uh, Michael Anthony on a, a DI thing into his iPhone, so that helped a lot because trying to record bass in a room and he you now he has to be on camera and then his bass amp is like behind him, so it ends up being kind of really roomy. So, um. Yeah, just trying to get as close as you can. Vocals actually work out pretty good on the iPhone. Yeah, I would assume like the biggest challenge would be the drums because just the sheer level. Yeah, and yeah, it was interesting that the iPhone mic didn't blow out. It actually sounded pretty good because I think he was far enough back. And it was kind of cool because in his recording space at home, in his uh, home studio, it's it's a pretty good sounding big room. So it got that kind of bottom sound. That's awesome. Which yeah, I've, cool. I've heard, and I can't confirm this, but I've heard that like Apple's engineering team, there's like a massive audio division where basically what they do is they take the newest iPhone and they'll go to like major, like big concerts and stuff like that. And like the goal is to record those concerts as cleanly as possible. And, oh, great. and, and if they can do that, <laughs> then then they know that they're on the right track with their mics. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they're going to be responsible for the best sounding bootlegs out there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess I guess that's their goal is they want to see more like iPhone recordings or something. And, and you're starting to see more of it. I know that like Tom Morello just released an album that was all done on iPhones as well. And it, no kidding. Oh, yeah, I didn't the, know that. That's yeah, awesome. The whole um, the Night Watchman album, I think it's I think that's what it is. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. every oh, every right. it was completely recorded on iPhone, and because uh, I guess he said he just he was he didn't have the studio set up at his house, so he he was like, or, or he, his engineer couldn't come to his his home studio, so he was like, whatever, I'm just gonna use my phone and try to do it, and uh, it's, it actually sounds incredible. It, so. Yeah. Well, it, I think it goes back to to the to the musician, you know. It's and I think the fans kind of connect with that because it's a little more raw. It's not this pristine thing in the studio and I think that's what Sammy was going for. It's like let's go for something raw and real. That's what he's about is like what's, you know, make it real uh, and honest. Yeah. So I guess, I mean, you'd still be doing the same sort of production tricks, I'm guessing, where you're like double tracking guitars and recording, you know, multiple takes of stuff. And, and then like, I'm guessing when it comes to you and you edit it all together still, or is it kind of, are they all like kind of one takes? Like, you know, what's that, what's that look like as far as that oh, goes? Uh, yes. Sammy did do a few takes on the iPhone, which made it challenging for the video editing. So him and I had to be on the same page and like, Okay, from this section to this section, I think we actually had like a a grid, uh, uh, like timestamps, and when I was changing takes, and then he would have to change the video with it so it would match. So we had to do some kind of creative cuts sometimes on that. Um, 
but yeah, so that was that was the only thing that I had multiple takes on. There wasn't any double guitars. I just had to use some, you know, some stereo widening on Vic's guitar. He was mostly the main guitar on the the whole thing. Sammy played guitar on some things too. But and there was some. I think there was one song where he was playing acoustic guitar and singing, and somebody was just holding the phone out in front of him. So it's like that's just, you know it is what it is. It's it's an honest, honest, real recording. You know. Yeah. So as far as like the the cleanup goes and like the mixing stage. Like what, what kind of process is it? You said you had that waves plug, that waves process that you made, but is it just like a lot of carving or what's, what's that look like? Yeah, there definitely is. Um, I, yeah, I, I don't know if there's an actual iPhone curve frequency reducer, but, um, you know, as you, as you work on it for a while, you just kind of develop it like, okay, that's this sound. And then you just kind of start copying the settings, um, but yeah, that's a that's a good good question. Yeah, I guess I guess yeah, it would train your ears to identify the the resonances in the phone mic and and pick up on that that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, you do you do kind of just figure that out. But you know, at the end of the day, it's it's you know you do the best job you can, and then hopefully that energy of that band playing together quasi sort of you know, <laughs> it you know comes across you know. So it's kind of more about the about the vibe and, and the band playing and seeing them play kind of together remotely, you know, for sure is, is the whole idea. Well, I'm sure that you're happy to be working out of your studio again, or <laughs> working in real studios now and, and not having to do so many iPhone recordings. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. No, this is, um, this is a great place that I'm sitting in here. Uh, so we call it Wally's hideout and we're here in, um, San Francisco, um, and I've been here for uh, 17 years now, so I definitely know this room very well. And it's seen its um, evolutions over the years. Um, like I said, we started off with the analog console um, that was, you know, uh, lent to us by Bob Weir. Uh, at some point, he had actually taken all that gear back. So we eventually just kind of started buying our own gear and got some other studio partners in that can kind of help with the bookings and uh, bringing in their own gear. So this um all the gear that's in the studio is a collection of of everybody's contribution to the studio uh and then we went with a, a control surface for the recallability obviously but we're really focusing on the the front end of going in into pro tools so we've got the best possible uh, input signal you can get between um you know these cappy pre's which are uh, api uh, clones, and we've got some Vintech stuff, which is uh, Neves like clone stuff, um, and some Universal Audio stuff, and some Focusrite, um, and then that's all going into a Burl mothership. So we've got the best converters you can get going in, and then not to mention the recording space. The live room is, um, to be said, one of the best uh, drum recording rooms uh, in the Bay Area. And just to give you an idea, the the magic that's been done in this room was the Santana Abraxas record. So like their big hit, you know, Black Magic Woman and just, you know, hearing that record, that's the sound of of that room. There's a lot of classic 70s bands that have done a lot of major records here. That's got to be pretty awesome to know like, yeah, these major records were done right here. Like, <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, this this place works. It's tried and true. And, and we've made a lot of, you know, new modern records in here that are there that are out there and sounding great um it's i you know i absolutely love this live room for recording drums it makes it so easy i've recorded in a lot of amazing studios and 
this one is probably my favorite, uh, just because I know exactly where the drums go, where to put the mics, and it's just a repeatable, you know, perfect sound that we can we can get here. And I've, you know, kind of passed that on to my other studio partners and other engineers that come through here. Like, this is the place where you put these and this is how you'll get this sound. Put it through this gear. Like, you'll get an amazing drum sound. Nice. Well, you you had mentioned the Cappy preamps and the Vintex as well. And um, I'm curious to get your thoughts on those. Like, these days there are, you know, people still lust after, like, the big name brand stuff, like the Neves or the, the actual APIs and that kind of stuff. But there are a lot of more affordable products out there, like the Cappy or the Vintex, which are basically similar circuitry and similar sound. And I'm curious just to get your thoughts on how those compare against the originals and, and you know, was your decision to go the route of getting clones? Like, was that a financial decision? Was it a sonic decision? Um, a little of both. Um, you know, you're trying to get the best bang for your buck when you're a studio owner. Um, and I, you know, clients are drawn to those, those names, but I think at the end of the day, it's just like, well, what does it sound like? You know, let's, you know, let's hear, let's hear some recordings from there. Um, and we had a few of these preamps and really liked them. You know, all of the, um, studio partners that I have here, were all, we all like love these Cappy Pre's. Um, I have a lot more experience with actual API stuff because that's the console I use at Sammy's studio and I've recorded quite a few records on that thing. So I know what that console sounds like. I know what a, a real API console sounds like. Um, and I feel like we're getting that with these Cappies. They have that really forward kind of punchy sound that, you know, APIs are known for. Um, so we love those. And I've always been a fan of the Neve stuff and we have the, um, the Vintech stuff. Um, and it's, yeah, a little bit more affordable than the actual Neve or the API stuff, but I think it sounds just as good. Um, I'm, I'm getting the, the kind of feel of those, those real boxes there. Yeah. I, I personally have a couple of the Cappy preamps and I, I love them as well. I think they're like, as far as bang for the buck, like you said, like, you know, for, for the price of two of them, you can get. For, so for, sorry for the price of one normal api you could probably get like two or three of the the cappies right <laughs> yeah exactly and then it's nice to just put those across the drums is what we usually do and then you just get a nice consistent tone on those and then um yeah we have a lot of eqs um below it some some uh some api stuff some real api eqs Awesome. Are you guys currently working? Like what kind of projects are you currently working on or, or can you even talk about well, this? That's, um, um, that's a good question. So we, we have four partners here, uh, myself included, and we all have our own kind of clientele, which never seems to, to overlap. Like there's no like real competition. We all have our own clientele, which, you know, works out great, um, to, um, to have that. Um, uh, don't think I have any, current projects right now i'm i'm kind of in mix mode right now from here to the end of the year um a lot of projects that i've already recorded um and not here actually <laughs> so i get a lot of um outside outside um mix work that's i would say that's predominantly a lot of my work um but i do love coming in here and, and working with the band i did some projects just before the the pandemic um and those came out great um that were all recorded here Cool. Awesome, man. Well, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, so we should start to wrap up. But um, if people want to learn more about you or learn more about your studio or follow you online, what's the best way for them to do that? Okay. So there's um, my stu my um, my personal website is just my name, which is jamesendur.com. 
the uh, studio um, is Wally's Hideout, um, which is uh, just like it sounds, except for Hyde is spelled H Y D E um, O U T. Um, and there's an interesting story to that that I, I actually wanted to tell. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So this the studio that we're in is called Hyde Street Studios, and there's three large uh, studios in this building. Um, studio A downstairs is is run by by Hyde Street Studios. That's kind of their room, and then they lease out two other rooms upstairs uh, where I am, and which used to be called Studio C. And then there's another one in the back that was called Studio D. Um, but we decided to rename our studio Wally's Hideout because before this was Hyde Street, which it started in 1980. Before it was called a place called um, um, Wally Hyder's Recording. So we kind of did a play on names since we're actually on Hyde Street. So we called it Wally's Hideout. Nice. Know, like Wally's <laughs> Hiders, but because there's a lot of history to that. That's when all those those big 70s records were done here. Yeah, so, you definitely got to um, preserve that that history there. Yeah. So hopefully there'll be there'll be links on your site. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely have I'll definitely have all the your, your, links to your website, links to the studio website, all in the show notes, so people can check yeah. that out. And there's all the social media stuff. It's it's just my name. So awesome. I'm pretty easy to find. Cool, man. Well, well, thanks again for taking the time to do this today. I really appreciate it. It's awesome to hear the the stories of working with like Joe and Sammy. It's just awesome to hear some some of that story and the history that went into those records and and also in your studio as well. Yeah, absolutely. So that was my interview with Jameson Durr, and that was really interesting. I loved hearing the background on working with artists like Sammy Hagar and Joe Satriani, and I thought it was super cool to hear about the iPhone recordings and how they made that project come together. And yeah, it's super impressive to see that, you know, artists are able to make amazing sounding recordings with just a simple iPhone microphone. You know, a lot of times we talk about how you need to have like the greatest, most expensive gear. And, you know, if you're on internet forums, people are going to always be hyping that kind of stuff up as if like you need to have that stuff to have great recordings. But the fact of the matter is, is that there are some major artists these days who are successfully making records using only an iPhone and getting away with it. You know, I know, like I said, Tom Morello just recently released an album that has all iPhone recordings. Uh, the fact that Sammy Hagar did it, it just really shows you that, you know, if these big artists can do it, you can absolutely do it too. And you definitely don't need to have super expensive gear to get great results. So really glad to have had Jameson on the podcast to talk about that and all the other great stuff that he shared, especially talking about building trust with artists and all that kind of stuff. That's all really good information that is definitely worth paying attention to and worth implementing into your approach to your career. So I hope that you enjoyed that episode. And if you did, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live on Wednesday mornings. And also visit MasterYourMix.com. If you haven't already checked it out yet, go to MasterYourMix.com. That's where I help out musicians with creating pro-sounding recordings from their home studios. And on the website, we've got a ton of great resources designed to help make the process of mixing and recording your music easy. And one resource that you're definitely going to want to check out is called the Mixing Mindset Book. That is a book that I put out a few years ago that became an Amazon number one seller. And in that book, I really break down the process of mixing to make it super clear for you, covering all of the steps that you need to be taking, all of the things that you need to be listening out for, how to use the tools like EQ, compression, effects, automation, and so much more to get the sounds that your recordings deserve. You want to show off your music in the best way possible, and this book is going to help you get there. So once again, check that out. It's called The Mixing Mindset, and it's a book available at MasterYourMix.com. All right, guys, that is it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed that, and I'll talk to you in the next one. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. 
To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com. Thank you.